Today's talk is going to be given by, um, as I said, Professor Brad Roth. He holds a joint appointment with the Law School and Politics Faculty, if I've got that right. Um, and he has published very, very broadly and widely on a number of issues in international politics and international uh, comparative law. And I'll just highlight um, uh, his book, 1999, from Oxford University, Oxford University Press, Governmental Illegitimacy and, uh, and International Law. Um, and his topic today will be sovereign equality and moral disagreement. Well, thank you very much, David, and uh, I want to thank uh, everyone uh, here at, uh, at Oxford for hosting me. Uh, it's been a great opportunity to come here, uh, and uh, to, to David as well as uh, Jennifer and Dapo, who uh, uh, unfortunately probably won't be able to make it here, um, but thank you all very much. Um, the, uh, the topic of this talk is, uh, in fact, a forthcoming book uh, that will uh, come out from Oxford University Press in either August or September. Uh, of this title, Sovereign Equality and Moral Disagreement, Premises of a Pluralist International Legal Order. Uh, and I've stolen some of my thunder by giving a, a handout here that lays out some of the more complex concepts that I'm trying to uh, deal with in the talk today. Uh, and I will uh, focus on some of this material and perhaps leave over uh, for our discussion some of the more practical applications uh, of some of this, uh, this material. Uh, the, the book itself is organized in some sense in two parts, with the first part having to do with more conceptual issues about the project uh, of international legality and the relationship between international and state authority. Uh, and the latter part then goes to applications and questions having to do with issues of humanitarian intervention, uh, international responses to secessions and coups, uh, and international criminal justice, and particularly international criminal justice carried out by domestic legal orders. Uh, and so um, we can uh, get to, to many issues that I'm sure are, are burning questions for people uh, on those latter topics. And what I'll do here uh, in the, the time that I have to, uh, to give a presentation in chief is to try to lay out for you uh, the, the general sense of, of my approach to international legal order and, uh, and some of the more distinctive concepts uh, that I'm seeking to draw on in, in laying this out. Uh, the work that I do generally is application of, of political theory to problems in international and comparative public law. Uh, and so uh, a great deal of my work is, in fact, on the relationship between international and domestic authority. My first book uh, on governmental illegitimacy was this question of when is a government not a government for purposes of international law. Uh, and uh, ever since then, I have been dealing with a whole range of questions uh, involving uh, the use of force, involving international criminal justice, uh, human rights uh, and the law of war, and uh, dealing with uh, a, a range of questions that uh, have led me to try to systematize an approach uh, to uh, not only international law as such on these questions, but the relationship between international law and international political morality. Uh, and it is, in some ways, my, my dissatisfaction uh, with the way that the rhetoric uh, has presented that relationship that has driven uh, what I've attempted to do with this book. Uh, the book itself uh, is rather strident um, on behalf of what are, I think, ultimately some rather moderate propositions. Uh, the point of the book is, in some sense, to vindicate uh, on moral grounds some of the essence of the existing international legal order. Uh, it is, one might say, a conservative book, uh, not in the sense of being from the right side of the political spectrum, but in the sense uh, of seeking to uh, vindicate and provide moral justification for uh, what are uh, established and existing principles of international law, and to try to demonstrate uh, that international law, uh, even in, in respect of its most unpopular uh, doctrines, uh, doctrines associated with the prerogatives of the sovereign state, um, uh, nonetheless has a uh, very significant moral value. Uh, and the, uh, the thesis broadly uh, is uh, set out for you at the start here in these two sentences uh, at the top of the outline. Uh, the sovereign equality-based international legal order serves as a constraint on self-help, uh, denying the strong license to pursue justice as they perceive it. 
redefining sovereignty as responsibility and disallowing impunity, though widely viewed as progressive aims, uh, represent potential threats to constraint on untrusted and untrustworthy implementers of universal justice. Uh, so that seeks to cram a whole bunch of controversial statements into uh, two pithy sentences, uh, but I'll try to lay out for you uh, a little bit uh, what I'm trying to get at with all of this and, and what uh, sort of vision of international order I'm seeking to vindicate. Um, the uh, perhaps driving insight uh, of, uh, of, of the, the project here um, is uh, something I've, I've borrowed from Jeremy Waldron, who borrowed it from Immanuel Kant. Uh, and uh, so you have this quote at the top of the sheet here uh, uh, by Kant, uh, that even if we imagine men to be ever so good-natured and righteous before uh, a, a public lawful state of society is established, individual men, nations, and states can never be certain that they are secure against violence from one another because each will have his own right uh, to do what seems just and good to him entirely independent of the opinion of others. Uh, and uh, so this is the fundamental problem of moral disagreement. Uh, we often think about the international legal order as a reconciliation of a clash of interests uh, internationally, um, and it is uh, relatively rarely that we focus uh, on the extent to which principled disagreement drives conflict in the international order. Um, the, the, the famous words of uh, James Madison uh, uh, ring in the United States about uh, uh, how if, uh, if men were angels there would be no need for government. Um, uh, Kant's insight goes beyond that to say that even perhaps if men were angels, uh, the problem would be uh, that their pursuit of justice and righteousness uh, would lead them to conflict with other people who had different understandings of the content of justice and righteousness, um, and that we would need some kind of order to reconcile uh, not only competing interests, uh, but competing conceptions of the right. Uh, and, uh, and for Waldron, if anyone has uh, read uh, uh, Law and Disagreement or The Dignity of Legislation, two works that Jeremy Waldron uh, produced in the, uh, the mid-1990s, uh, you see uh, uh, an interesting uh, effort uh, on Waldron's part in ways to, to harmonize uh, Kant with Hobbes. Um, in this regard, uh, perhaps somewhat counterintuitively, uh, to demonstrate the ways in which positive law actually performs this important moral function, uh, and that being serious about the rule of law means adherence to positive law under circumstances uh, where one's personal uh, moral view, uh, uh, not only about the nature of the good, but about the nature of the right, uh, would leave one uh, to a, a different conclusion. Uh, so this is a, uh, a kind of grounding point uh, of uh, the, the project here on international uh, legality. And uh, the, the fundamental difficulty uh, is that not only do we have uh, a, a plurality of conceptions uh, of just and legitimate internal public order uh, in the international system, uh, but uh, we also have invocations of uh, universal values by empowered actors uh, who are both untrusted and untrustworthy. Uh, and the fact that they are untrusted uh, is, uh, gives rise to, to one set of problems. Uh, the fact that they're untrustworthy gives rise to another uh, from, stand, from different standpoints within the international order. Uh, the fact that they are untrusted uh, means that they need to concede something uh, to uh, weaker parts of the international order in order to legitimate the exercise of power within the international system. Uh, the disproportionate authority uh, of rich, powerful, liberal democratic states in the international system system, um, which uh, perhaps from the standpoint of those of us who live within rich, powerful, liberal democratic countries seems uh, like the most natural thing, um, is in fact something viewed uh, with uh, justifiable suspicion uh, and concern uh, by those who are less empowered in the international order uh, and less comfortable with the notion uh, that, uh, that those in uh, wealthy uh, liberal democratic uh, countries uh, either have their best interests at heart uh, or know what their best interests are. Uh, and so from the standpoint even of rich and powerful nations, uh, it is important to establish legitimacy through an international legal order uh, that respects something uh, along the lines of what I'll describe as sovereign equality. 
Um, whereas from the standpoint of disempowered uh, elements of the international order, uh, the question is uh, uh, not so much the untrustedness, but the untrustworthiness uh, of those who exercise power. Uh, that indeed, uh, memory is quite long in many parts of the world uh, about how it is that uh, in the name of civilization, uh, uh, great powers, uh, both in Western Europe and in North America, um, have uh, exerted authority in other parts of the world uh, in ways uh, that uh, perhaps had a remarkably dubious uh, result. Uh, and therefore, uh, the, the international order uh, needs to be understood as a kind of compact, one might say a kind of principal deal uh, among different forces uh, in the international system. Um, one of the sources of frustration uh, for me in, in looking at the way in which people speak about international political morality um, is uh, the tendency to try to generate an ethos uh, of international order uh, from the, uh, the idea that uh, we can uh, sort of find hypothetical agreement uh, with hy hypothesized reasonable others. Um, when, in fact, uh, these uh, hypothesized reasonable others uh, in, in works of people like John Rawls uh, end up uh, becoming uh, the kinds of people who would be altogether too easy to get along with uh, because the nature of our disagreement with them doesn't, in fact, uh, drive us to uh, any uh, very strong uh, uh, sense of outrage or emotion. Um, and, uh, and the reality is that if we are going to have a working international order, we are going to have to deal uh, not just uh, with people uh, whom we can respect in the ways, in the in sort of deep ways uh, that, uh, that a John Rawls would hope to in the, in the law of peoples, um, but rather that we're going to have to deal with people very much as they are, uh, at least insofar as they're people who we cannot at any reasonable human cost uh, overcome by force, coercion, and, and so on. Um, we, uh, uh, we need to have an international order that is effectively capable uh, of establishing legitimacy across a broad range uh, of not only interests, uh, but also uh, ideological proclivities. Now, it seems strange to be saying that in 2011, uh, given the fact that the, the Cold War is long behind us uh, and uh, that many developments can, can be invoked uh, for the, the notion that uh, ideological diversity has greatly narrowed in the international order uh, and there's certainly there's been a, a substantial diminution in the self-confidence of those who would challenge uh, liberal democratic norms in the international order. And nothing uh, that I say here uh, is an effort uh, to uh, disparage uh, those developments. Uh, I think that they are in many important respects real uh, and uh, that they provide important opportunities for international order to do more, uh, to, to in, in fact uh, have uh, a much greater reach uh, than uh, in, in any previous era. Uh, the problem is that the reach uh, still exceeds the grasp uh, in important ways, and I think that there, there continues to be uh, uh, some failure of imagination in how uh, a seeming consensus uh, on a set of abstract norms can deteriorate very quickly uh, into uh, a remarkably fractious and indeed violent dissensus uh, on uh, how those norms are applied in real-life situations in, in internal conflict. Um, the, the book is, uh, very much focuses on the concept of sovereignty um, in, in terms of orienting the relationship between international and domestic public order, uh, and therefore it's going to be important to describe exactly what is meant by sovereignty and also, uh, I think, to uh, give some justification for why it is that this arcane concept is worth keeping around. Um, the, the word sovereignty has been used in so many different ways uh, that perhaps it means nothing at all. Uh, particularly, it has been invoked uh, for many propositions uh, that, uh, that, that seem uh, in the final analysis uh, uh, not to, uh, to work out in practice. Uh, and uh, therefore, it becomes uh, uh, quite plausible for many people to think that whatever it is you want to say about this relationship between international and domestic authority, uh, the word sovereignty only works to confuse the matter. And I'm sympathetic to that critique, uh, but I nonetheless want to resist it because I think that there is uh, a, a peculiarity of the concept of sovereignty that is actually crucial in understanding the nature of the relationship between international and domestic legal authority in the international system as we've known it. 
Um, but first, it's important to think about sovereignty uh, not uh, simply as a, a, a range of different conceptions, but actually as a, a number of distinctly different concepts that actually apply to very different kinds of conversations, which in some ways overlap, but which have to be understood as uh, completely distinct. Uh, the first sense of sovereignty, uh, which I lay out in the outline here, uh, is as an empirical capacity to, to exercise unilateral control over a field of activity uh, or to set policies unilaterally in a particular field of activity. Uh, and so this is an empirical conception uh, of sovereignty, and people can uh, look at uh, the, to what extent states have been sovereign over time uh, as measured by certain empirical criteria. Uh, and the significance of this in the current period is to say that there has been this diminution uh, of sovereignty understood in this way, uh, and therefore that uh, we need to uh, uh, stop or, or reduce talking about uh, about sovereignty. Um, there is also the argument, of course, that sovereignty never really was this in the first place. That uh, and people like Stephen Krasner uh, have uh, have pointed out that uh, much of what has uh, been uh, asserted for sovereignty uh, is uh, is historically unjustified. Um, the, um, the problem here, though, is that uh, this is a particular kind of conversation about sovereignty, which has an effect on the normative conversation, ultimately, uh, because uh, if, if the, the independence of states were really so far diminished um, that, uh, that this was no longer a meaningful way to talk uh, about international behavior, um, there, there would necessarily be an effect on the normative framework that, that connects to all of that. <laughs> Um, but the, the tendency is to uh, greatly exaggerate, it seems to me, uh, the, the diminution of the significance of, of the sovereign state. Um, it is, uh, it's, it's easy to see uh, the, uh, the, the, the nature of changes in the international order. Certainly the, all of the incentives from the standpoint of scholarship are to focus on how much things have changed, uh, rather at the expense of how many mundane things have stayed the same. Uh, and most crucially, uh, I would say, uh, the, the fundamental concerns uh, that, uh, that, that ground discussions of sovereignty um, have to do with uh, the importance of territorial order uh, to the organization of anyone's life. Um, there are very few people in the world, no matter how globally oriented they may be, whose lives would not be devastated uh, by the collapse of territorial public order uh, from where they, they're based. Uh, and, uh, and so the idea of, uh, of sovereignty as somehow an issue that's sort of withering away, um, I, I think, is uh, uh, not, uh, not particularly pertinent uh, to, uh, to my enterprise here. Uh, another sense in which the word sovereignty is used is as a kind of policy imperative, uh, an imperative of maintaining or reasserting unilateral control over a particular field of activity. And this is a use of the term sovereignty that one sees a great deal in the United States and particularly on the political right. Um, and uh, it, it, it now has, in the last few years, uh, this new uh, coloration uh, with the term American exceptionalism, which has been uh, uh, sort of dug out and, uh, and, and transformed into uh, some uh, uh, new and more idiosyncratic uh, uh, concept here. Uh, but of course, when people are speaking about sovereignty in this sense, first of all, they're not speaking at all in terms of sovereignty under international law. They're not speaking of sovereign equality uh, of states with one another. They're speaking particularly on the American right uh, of the sovereignty, the external sovereignty of the United States uh, to pursue uh, policies abroad as, it, as, it, as the United States sees fit. Uh, alone, um, as well as uh, to uh, to operate internally without regard uh, for the, uh, uh, the the international legal obligations or without regard uh, for the uh, international public opinion. Um, this is uh, again pertinent uh, to to questions about sovereignty in international law, um, but it is uh, essentially a political assertion. Um, it is one that, uh, you know, in, in some contexts uh, has 
uh, you know, some, I think, uh, uh, significance. If it, if it were not, if the arguments were not coming from some of the most empowered actors in the world, uh, one might take more seriously the concerns uh, about the, the way in which international order uh, may deprive existing political communities of uh, uh, their ability to uh, set their own course uh, and make decisions that are fundamental to uh, social life within their territories. Um, when it comes from certain sectors in the United States, um, uh, frankly, there is uh, some difficulty in taking it seriously, um, except that uh, one has to concede, and as, as someone very much on the left side of the political spectrum in the United States, I can, uh, I can concede this, um, that you know, we, we don't win a lot of elections in the United States, uh, and we don't uh, necessarily got a lot, get a lot of favorable court decisions on the basis of domestic law, and there is a, a natural tendency um, for uh, people on the left side of the political spectrum in the United States uh, to be drawn to forum shopping, uh, to be drawn to uh, moving the discussion to a, a different level uh, of, uh, of decision making where, uh, frankly, you know, cosmopolitan elites uh, with whom we perhaps uh, feel more affinity uh, than with uh, voting blocks in the United States uh, are, are you know, going to side with us and in the name of some sort of uh, naturalistic truth um, uh, weigh in on our side and in domestic political controversies. Um, I, this is, and one may think about this uh, however one might, but it's important to be sort of sensitive to this uh, in part because of the way that it relates to much more consequential uh, considerations that affect uh, much uh, less, less powerful actors uh, in the international order uh, and those who see their ways of life being in some way uh, uh, threatened by uh, the encroachment uh, of, uh, of external influences that uh, are able to penetrate uh, their societies at will. Um, the third concept of sovereignty, uh, which also is uh, slightly different from the issue that I'm, I'm seeking to deal with here, uh, is what I call the domestic juridical conception uh, of, uh, of sovereignty. Uh, and this has to do with the ultimate source of authority within any um, particular domestic legal regime. Uh, and uh, the, the classical idea uh, about sovereignty is that we are looking for the uncommanded commander. Uh, that sovereign, the, 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 the sovereign is uh, engaged in uh, a, a kind of project uh, that, that is uh, assimilable to uh, the, uh, the, the notion of a, of a command backed by a threat uh, in, in traditional conceptions about positive law. Uh, and uh, if, uh, according to people like Bodin and Hobbes, uh, you look far enough into any legal order, uh, you find that there's someone who can give commands without having to take them. Uh, and uh, indeed that this is uh, absolutely foundational uh, to any working uh, political order. Um, the, uh, the Hobbesian conception is not very popular uh, anymore among uh, jurisprudence, uh, and uh, for very good reason, the, the project of domestic legality uh, is effectively a project uh, to uh, recast sovereignty as something that is constituted by legal norms. Uh, and so uh, the, in, in some sense, uh, the, the project is to extinguish this idea of unaccountable, potentially arbitrary decision making uh, and to uh, reduce uh, uh, all of that to the, uh, the, the making decisions within established competences uh, of, uh, of, of norm-bounded uh, institutions. Uh, and, and that is the project of public law. Um, there is, however, a problem with this, and the problem uh, was uh, noticed uh, most notoriously by Carl Schmitt uh, in a book called Political Theology in 1922. Um, and, uh, and Schmitt, I think, successfully demonstrates the continued significance of Bodin and Hobbes, uh, that the project of extinguishing sovereignty uh, internally uh, is beset by this difficulty uh, that the, the legal order uh, can find itself in crisis where it needs uh, to have recourse to extra-legal means to protect itself 
from its enemy. Um, and this is a problem uh, that, that long predates uh, uh, Schmidt's discussion, long predates Article 48 of the, of the Weimar Constitution, which was uh, uh, Schmidt's uh, subject matter. Um, it uh, uh, was, uh, was operative in the early stages of the Civil War in the United States when Abraham Lincoln unilaterally suspended habeas corpus and made uh, similar kinds of, um, uh, of arguments. Uh, it goes back uh, in, uh, in the, the literature uh, to places uh, like uh, Machiavelli's discourses uh, in which he uh, uh, argues in favor of the, of, of the institution of what was then called dictatorship uh, precisely because of the need uh, to uh, uh, avoid corrupting the ordinary laws uh, in times of emergency uh, and, uh, and be able to effectively defend the political order. Um, the, uh, the significance of this discussion uh, to the overall concept of sovereignty uh, is uh, uh, perhaps a little bit difficult to grasp, but the, the, the fundamental point um, it comes from uh, Schmidt's interpretation of Bodin uh, on the, the relationship between the monarch and the, uh, and the estates. Uh, and the status of covenants that are made by the monarch with the estates. Uh, and uh, from uh, Schmidt's standpoint, um, uh, Bodin is, is saying that the covenants are indeed binding in some sense, uh, and yet uh, the, uh, the, the sovereign uh, may determine unilaterally uh, that abiding by the covenants in any uh, given instance uh, do, does not uh, serve the purposes of justice, and there isn't anyone who can um, then impose uh, any judgment, any adverse judgment on the sovereign decision uh, to suspend uh, compliance uh, with the covenants. Uh, and that, I think, uh, says something very fundamental about what the nature of sovereignty is. And I think uh, whatever else one might think of Schmidt, um, and, and there are many negative things to say about Schmidt, uh, the, there, this fundamental Schmidtian insight, uh, which is boiled down to his famous expression, sovereign is he who decides on the exception, uh, is that sovereignty is the authority to suspend valid law. Uh, that sovereignty and obligation um, are uh, not mutually exclusive, that there is residual sovereignty that withstands the existence uh, of legal obligation. Uh, and, uh, and therefore, uh, that acts which are in breach uh, of obligation are not necessarily null and void. Uh, and that uh, is, I think, a very accurate understanding of the nature of sovereignty and its relationship with international legal obligation, uh, which, uh, which comes next. Um, the, uh, the fourth aspect of sovereignty here is this uh, international juridical conception of sovereignty, which is the focus of the book. Um, and it has to do with the terms of mutual uh, reciprocal recognition uh, among states in a horizontal order. Uh, and what sovereignty means from the standpoint of international law, it seems to me, are effectively three things, uh, three presumptions, um, all of which uh, can be in certain circumstances overcome and indeed are overcome in certain circumstances, uh, but all of which are quite strong presumptions, actually. Um, the first presumption has to do with how international law is made, how norms are recognized in the international order, uh, and that is the presumption uh, that states are bound only by the terms of their own consent. Um, what that means turns out to be much more nuanced uh, than uh, any straightforward interpretation of consent uh, would admit. Um, and uh, there is a whole overlay of, uh, of international legal methodology and, of course, disputation within international legal methodology about what can count uh, effectively as uh, uh, you know, a, a, an act attributable to the will of the state itself. Um, and, uh, and certainly uh, the, uh, there are many ways in which states uh, end up being uh, bound without in any way expressly consenting uh, to the international order. Uh, but a fundamental principle having to do with consent is the flip side of it, the negative of consent, the idea of persistent objection. 
um, that where customary international law uh, arises uh, and a state insists that it will not be bound uh, by this particular norm, regardless of how the norm operates for the rest of the international system, uh, in principle, uh, under the, the, the kinds of methods that have been generally accepted historically in the international legal order, uh, the state is free of those norms. Um, the, the state cannot be bound where it persistently objects. Uh, and this is only overcome in some limited set of cases uh, having to do with what are called peremptory norms of the international uh, system or use kogans. Uh, and what counts as use kogans uh, ends up being uh, extraordinarily uh, fraught uh, as a matter in, in the international order. But the important thing to note uh, about uh, invocations of use kogans is that uh, they have really uh, relatively limited uh, kinds of legal effects. Um, uh, there's a tremendous amount of ink spilled over the question of, of use kogans uh, and very little real payoff because um, there's almost never a controversy uh, that actually turns on this question uh, of, uh, of whether something uh, counts as use kogans. Um, uh, where significant states uh, continue to remain outside of, uh, of an international consensus, uh, the fact is that uh, uh, one uh, cannot prevail against them uh, on, on this kind of theory. Uh, and, uh, and there are really very few circumstances where, uh, where use kogans uh, uh, actually can be uh, productively invoked um, uh, in a legal controversy. Uh, the, the second presumption is that uh, state's obligations, though binding on the state as a corporate entity, uh, act on a distinct legal plane um, and are presumed to have legal effect within the state only to the extent that domestic <coughs> law has incorporated them. Uh, and uh, this is the, the fundamental principle of dualism, although the word dualism has a number of different meanings uh, in, in this area. Uh, rather confusingly. Uh, but uh, the, the basic idea here is that you can have international legal obligations uh, that, uh, do, that are not incorporated into the domestic legal order, that, that, domestic, legal, that domestic decisions can be taken uh, fully consistent with domestic law, which are in breach of the international obligation. Um, and then what follows uh, is a, a situation is where, where the same act is lawful and unlawful simultaneously. Uh, and under those circumstances, I want to argue that international law, by the operation of its own doctrines in many cases, has to acknowledge the legal facts that are created uh, by this domestic legal order, notwithstanding its incompatibility uh, with the international obligation. Uh, and this is particularly important in international criminal law with the concept of nullum crimen sine lege, uh, where the lege uh, is something that uh, uh, necessarily is affected by the domestic legal order. Um, it, uh, it is uh, significant from the standpoint of international human rights uh, of whether someone is uh, uh, convicted in accordance uh, with a, a law that uh, operates uh, internally uh, at the time and place uh, of the, uh, the act in question. Um, there are other applications too, and one of them has to do with uh, permanent sovereignty over natural resources. Uh, a, a state may uh, unlawfully expropriate resources. Um, that doesn't mean that the title uh, to that uh, expropriated property doesn't pass uh, to the government uh, for purposes of being passed on potentially uh, to other actors, and, and there's a whole set of controversies over this. Uh, but again, I would argue that the, uh, the, the significance uh, is that uh, the states act as such um, has not only domestic but even international legal significance, notwithstanding the fact that it's taken in breach of the international obligation. Uh, the third thing is the, the presumption of the inviolability of states' territorial integrity and political independence uh, as against threat or use of force or as against extreme economic or political coercion, as that is uh, uh, invoked in, in documents such as the uh, UN Declaration of Principles of International Law Concerning Friendly Relations from 1970. 
Um, and uh, and th these are presumed to withstand uh, even the violation of international legal norms. Uh, it simply isn't the case uh, that uh, states' uh, a right to territorial integrity and political independence is contingent uh, straightforwardly on fulfillment of international legal obligations and countermeasures that can be taken against violators of international legal norms uh, are quite expressly limited uh, by norms that have to do with uh, territorial integrity and political independence of states. Um, and, uh, and this demonstrates that there are limitations on the amount of coercion that can lawfully be brought to bear to vindicate uh, international legal norms. Uh, which uh, uh, it, it seems sort of counterintuitive from the standpoint of any legal order. Uh, when people are, are used to, to thinking about domestic legal orders, they're thinking about the idea uh, that the, uh, if, if a norm is breached, there must be someone somewhere within the system who has sufficient uh, uh, coercive authority uh, to be able to vindicate the norm. <laughs> Uh, and it is not merely a matter of practice, but a matter of principle that in international law that's frequently not the case. Uh, that because what we have is a horizontal legal order and because we have untrusted and untrustworthy uh, implementers of, of supposed international order, um, we necessarily have a situation in which uh, states have certain kinds of immunities uh, from exercises of force and coercion uh, which, uh, which withstand even their own misbehavior. Uh, so I boiled down at the bottom of this page the four paradoxes uh, that the same act can be lawful and unlawful simultaneously on coexisting legal planes. Uh, the legal obligation does not imply the licensing of measures sufficient to compel compliance. Um, the legal obligation does not imply the renunciation of authority to commit a breaching act, um, which follows from uh, the, the dualistic point. Uh, and, uh, and also uh, that whereas internally the rule of law is about subjecting sovereign authority itself to law, sovereignty is constituted by legal norms, uh, the international rule of law is based on a sovereign equality uh, which is an accommodation among territorial communities that bear an underlying capacity uh, to overthrow domestic uh, authority. Uh, this is uh, something that goes very much to this problem about recognition of secessions and coups, which I deal with extensively. Um, but uh, we, we tend to imagine somehow uh, an international legal order um, as uh, one that would uh, uh, in some way be an, a legal order of legal orders um, and, uh, and one that would, uh, would therefore uh, provide an opportunity to uh, make determinations of, of uh, legitimacy of exercises of power uh, at the domestic level based on compatibility with international norms about the international exercise of power. Um, and I want to argue that that, in fact, is not what we've had, uh, at least traditionally, as an international legal order. Rather, what we have uh, is an international legal order that recognizes uh, these sovereign territorial communities, and part of the aspect of their sovereignty uh, is this supposed inalienable right to choose their own political, economic, social, and cultural systems without interference uh, uh, from, from any other state uh, for any reason whatsoever. Um, that's the language of the Friendly Relations Declaration and a number of other uh, articulations. Um, and that therefore uh, uh, what you have is a kind of uh, sovereign right of political communities uh, to uh, uh, breach their own domestic legal orders uh, and establish uh, through the principle of effectivity um, uh, a, a, an order that has to be then respected uh, by the international uh, legal system. Uh, this is what I refer to somewhat acerbically uh, as uh, uh, the, the right to be ruled by your own thugs and to fight your civil wars in peace. Um, and, uh, and, and if it sounds like that's the kind of international legal order that I'm standing up for, one that, re that respects these ideas, um, that's absolutely right. Um, that, uh, that I am, in fact, uh, uh, seeking to uh, uh, bolster uh, the, the, the reputation of a, of a legal order uh, that, uh, that represents this. Um, the, uh, the, the, I want to sort of move along so that we can, uh, we can talk more, uh, more concretely about specific issues, uh, but I want to lay out for you a little bit the, the reason why um, the, uh, the, 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 there, there is, I, I put so much importance uh, on the diversity of opinion in the international uh, uh, order and therefore uh, the, uh, give certain kind of respect uh, for clashes over the question uh, of what counts uh, as uh, just and legitimate internal public order. Um, 
And uh, the, the, the problem that I find in many of the uh, ways in which uh, these matters get discussed uh, is uh, that there, there tends to be uh, a kind of invocation of universality uh, in, in concepts uh, having to do with political uh, justice and legitimacy, uh, and that those, uh, those concepts about uh, universality break down. And I want to argue they break down for reasons that don't have to do uh, specifically with cultural relativism. Um, that um, uh, the, the real problem here uh, is uh, uh, neither uh, that uh, there are uh, some sort of special immunities for different cultures um, uh, for, for the way in which they may think about politics um, and, uh, and therefore that power can be exercised uh, against people within communities based upon uh, some uh, uh, illiberal conception uh, that, that needs to be respected because uh, it, uh, it, it can Conforms to, uh, uh, to to some uh, deep-seated difference uh, of uh, of, a, of a different group of people, such that if one, one failed to respect their norms of public order, uh, one would be failing to respect them and their dignity as human beings. Um, I think that there's something fundamentally wrong uh, with that way of, of thinking about international pluralism, and particularly because the pluralism that I'm speaking to only pertains to the most extreme uh, kinds of reactions of the international community, only the kinds of coercive uh, acts of, of intervention uh, or international criminal prosecution that uh, occur uh, in circumstances where what you have are the, uh, uh, the, the impositions of the modern state state uh, uh, on uh, something that, uh, that doesn't look anything like, uh, you know, in, uh, by terms that doesn't look anything like a kind of traditional uh, governance of some, uh, some deep-seated cultural character. Uh, I, I think that it's, it's really quite irrelevant um, uh, to this to, to even question whether under certain circumstances uh, we might uh, take, uh, take seriously cultural relativism as a, a break on our universalistic uh, conception of political morality. Uh, I think from the standpoint of the modern state apparatus, um, uh, there is, uh, there's very little uh, to be uh, uh, conceded uh, with respect to problems of culture. Uh, but I think the problem is not uh, the, the, any kind of special immunities that we ought to confer uh, upon uh, uh, people on the basis of cultural difference, but rather uh, the fact that uh, disagreement about political matters uh, is endemic in political life, not just uh, for some unusual uh, and foreign them, uh, but for us, indeed, uh, that um, the, the, the kinds of, uh, of political differences uh, that uh, exist in the world that give rise to internal political conflict are, are the kinds of differences uh, that we should have no difficulty in processing uh, actually uh, as, uh, as Westerners, uh, as uh, uh, people who uh, uh, indeed uh, uh, have among us at, at, at some level of abstraction consensus about uh, basic values of human dignity uh, because uh, what turns out to be the case in many circumstances uh, is that uh, these, uh, these consensuses uh, uh, break down uh, for, for very systematic reasons. Uh, the, the, the goal of, uh, of, of trying to abstract from different comprehensive doctrines about human flourishing uh, and to, uh, to find some transcendent conception uh, of, uh, of the right that you know, sort of encompasses uh, a variety of, uh, of views of the good um, uh, doesn't work very well in the final analysis when one tries to apply the abstractions uh, that have been derived through that process uh, to real circumstances, uh, that in fact uh, there are uh, uh, important conflicts that uh, emerge among norms, uh, there are conflicting priorities that are uh, attributed uh, by people on the basis of the comprehensive doctrines uh, that, uh, that one is sort of seeking to uh, abstract from in the first place. Um, and most importantly, uh, that uh, there are going to be certain circumstances uh, in which 
uh, the uh, there are going to be different different forces that, that regard the end as justifying the means, uh, such that presumptively wrong acts that can be agreed upon as being presumptively wrong uh, in the abstract, uh, certainly among a, a wide swath of people, uh, end up uh, becoming subject to this overarching logic. Uh, where people consider uh, very fundamental values uh, being threatened uh, and people uh, then become quite willing uh, to um, um, invoke all kinds of methods uh, that they would not, uh, uh, in ordinary circumstances, uh, be willing to accept. Um, the, the problem uh, that I see here in a lot of discourse is that uh, we, we tend to assume that uh, whereas other people commit ruthless acts uh, for uh, sort of trivial or unprincipled reasons, that of course we do it uh, for some different category of reason. Uh, that, uh, that the sorts of acts that have been committed uh, by uh, Western liberal democratic states um, are of an entirely different order and category uh, of the, from the sort that are, are committed in, in, uh, in these kinds of conflicts. Uh, when in fact the, the major difference is the sort of stakes uh, that, uh, that currently exist uh, in poorer and more polarized uh, and otherwise beleaguered uh, uh, territorial political communities um, versus the kind of political life that we have by and large managed to establish uh, in Western liberal democratic states over time. Uh, and so um, the, uh, the, the, the basic point that I try to make, and it's really by, by reference to a series of, uh, of historical circumstances that uh, are not the ones that, that most commonly are invoked uh, by more optimistic uh, uh, human rights-oriented scholars. But, you know, the point that I make is that uh, under sufficiently adverse conditions such as extreme ethno-national or socioeconomic polarization, the inability to agree on a, on a fair basic structure of public order combined with the inability to agree on what measures are inadmissible in the struggle to install or maintain a basic structure of public order that comports with one own conception of fairness leads informed persons of good faith and sound reason to support ruthless measures against one another. Um, so uh, the, uh, the, the, the claim being made here is that internal political conflict uh, of a violent sort, of a sort that, that violates fundamental uh, human rights obligations, uh, is in fact uh, not some sort of uh, uh, pathology uh, that either is der derived from uh, perverse cultures on the one hand or mere cynical political entrepreneurs on the other, um, but uh, that is something that is endemic uh, to, uh, to, to political life and, that, and this manifests itself in particular structural circumstances in which people find their most fundamental uh, interests being pitted against one another and their most fundamental values being pitted against one another. And it is for that reason uh, that uh, uh, the, and, the, and, the, and the extent of stake that people have uh, in those kinds of conflicts um, that I think it becomes very important to take seriously uh, a pluralism of the international order. Um, this isn't a pluralism that is non-judgmental. Um, this is not an argument that there aren't simply people who are right and people who are wrong in these conflicts. Uh, it's not an argument uh, that uh, uh, you know, who are we to judge um, is not, is, uh, not in, in any sense uh, an argument from humility. Um, it is rather an argument that uh, at the end of the day, uh, there are certain people who have an unshared stake in the outcomes of their internal conflict, uh, and that outsiders who don't share that stake uh, have legitimate, have limited legitimacy in, uh, in, in sort of imposing their will upon these circumstances by force and direct coercion. Um, and uh, that indeed people who are uh, tending to impose these judgments from without often do so in ways that are not only skewed by their own self-interest, uh, but also skewed uh, by uh, their own uh, often quite altruistic tendencies to identify uh, with members of foreign societies that look the most like them, um, that, that with whom they, they have a tendency to identify people whom uh, they have direct access to and who tell their compelling stories stories, perhaps at the expense of whole other people, whole other sets of people out of sight um, whose compelling stories don't get heard in the same way. 
Um, and so um, uh, I think that there is uh, an importance, uh, morally speaking, uh, to a, uh, a system that favors self-determination of political communities, uh, that, that uh, presumes uh, that these matters are going to be rather raggedly worked out uh, uh, with political conflict, through political conflict within states, uh, and that uh, there is no automatic reason to think that it, it will be salutary, uh, particularly for or unilateral action um, uh, from the outside to uh, impose itself uh, upon these kinds of circumstances. Um, the argument here is not an argument that the Security Council um, should not uh, intervene in circumstances. The Security Council um, is only going to be intervening when there is uh, a, a, such a clear case uh, that there is a really broad-based consensus in the international system about fundamental elements of this conflict um, that will cut across uh, different ideological and cultural uh, perceptions about these matters. Uh, and, uh, and so I actually have a reasonable level of confidence in the Security Council uh, as a device for accomplishing this. Um, but want to take seriously the idea that the Security Council veto uh, is not actually a sign of dysfunction, uh, is not uh, uh, evidence of the system failing, uh, but rather is the, the hedge against uh, a, a kind of, uh, of, of partisan uh, uh, intervention in the internal affairs of states, uh, which is unlikely to be salutary and which violates, uh, I think, uh, relatively important uh, considerations having to do uh, with, uh, with self-determination. Um, I also want to argue uh, strongly against a, a certain kind of uh, uh, promiscuous uh, use of international criminal justice in domestic courts, which hasn't happened yet and uh, uh, may never happen and hopefully will never happen from my perspective, but which is uh, very much at work in the rhetoric about international justice, um, which uh, makes it all too easy for domestic court systems uh, to seek to invoke international law uh, to uh, criminalize uh, existing uh, regimes uh, abroad uh, with, with the effect uh, of undermining the, uh, the, the, the strictures uh, that would uh, uh, maintain some level of non-intervention in the in internal affairs of states. Um, this is pro a problem both uh, prospectively and retrospectively because um, some uh, of the effort to invoke uh, the, these kinds of principles of international criminal law uh, are uh, efforts which would, I think, um, tend to uh, look backward in history at people who had counseled uh, constraint uh, in, in respect of these matters and, and, and sort of show them up to be fools and knaves, uh, that, uh, that, they, that the real villains uh, of, uh, of past conflicts have been those who have counseled non-intervention, uh, and that now that we can invoke international law to pillory people um, as, as being uh, uh, beyond the scope of the protections of the international legal order, uh, that then makes it uh, all the more possible. Uh, to do something about these people. Um, and, uh, and part of the problem of this is that uh, the institutional capacities of the international order being very much dependent upon consent um, don't uh, ordinarily uh, uh, give rise to opportunities uh, to do something directly about what people identify as being criminal. Uh, and therefore, uh, you have what I refer to as the fork in the road, um, as I put it in the outline. In generating demands that exceed the institutional capacities of the international system, the quest for justice, for justice that transcends sovereign equality, leads to a fork in the road where one path leads to frustration and disillusionment uh, and the other to alliance with neoconservatives uh, who are, in essence, liberal internationalists who have become disillusioned uh, with the constraints of both broad multilateralism and deontological ethics. Um, the, um, the, the, the sorts of dynamics that one saw in 2003 um, where uh, people uh, in the United States and in the United Kingdom and, and in some other uh, uh, important Western countries have sort of found themselves uh, uh, hamstrung in their ability to uh, stand up for the international order uh, based upon certain kinds of appeals um, I think is, uh, is part of the danger uh, that we see here. And, um, 
for a, a wonderful example of the kind of legal scholarship uh, that I think leads to this fork in the road uh, quite expressly. Um, there's a wonderful, um, if uh, uh, from my point of view, uh, untoward piece by Michael Reisman uh, in the, uh, the 2000 volume of uh, the European Journal of International Law on multilateral on unilateralism, uh, which I think makes very directly the argument uh, for why it is that since international institutions can't keep up with international norms, uh, that uh, someone has to come along and, and and do the dirty work. Um, so this is the sort of thing that I, I think one needs to guard against in terms of the use of the, the rhetoric of international law to, uh, to pursue purposes that I think are at odds with the importance uh, of accommodation in the international order. Um, it's very difficult to cram all of this uh, material into a, a very short period, and so I'm, uh, I apologize for, for any incoherence of all of this and also for the abstraction of it as I haven't been able to get uh, to, uh, to specific cases that might um, uh, be, uh, be, be more enlightening in terms of the impact of, uh, of all of this. Uh, but uh, but I uh, hope to have at least started a conversation uh, about the relationship between sovereignty and the international legal order, and I look forward to uh, discussing with you uh, concerns that you may have uh, on these topics. So thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you very much, uh, Greg.